This is Crypto Radio, powered by MoneyWeb, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. We're talking to Jason Carpenter of Etherbridge, otherwise known as your friendly neighborhood blockchain guys. And also we're joined by John John Clark of Avo Labs, which is a blockchain development company. Welcome to both of you. How's it, Kieran? Thanks for having me. Okay, so more specifically, we're talking about Ethereum and why it's been on such a tear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's trading today just above $1,300, which is roughly where Bitcoin was four years ago. So a lot of people are seeing this as obviously the next big thing. Jason, is this the next big thing and why? I really do think that uh, Ethereum has what it takes to be the next big thing in blockchain. Ethereum is very similar to Bitcoin in that uh, it provides transacting parties with guarantees that their transactions will be processed, executed and settled. The thing that really makes Ethereum special is that it can provide these same guarantees but over basic conditional agreements, right? which we call smart contracts, something that John John is very familiar with. Um, these smart contracts and essentially what Ethereum is doing, if you think about Bitcoin as a mechanism for dematerializing central banks into a single software-based product, um, Ethereum is essentially doing this for intermediary services and contractual agreements. So dematerializing contractual agreements and intermediaries into a single software. Let's break that down product. into something that we all understand. So we're dematerializing and we're disintermediating and all these words that we use. So give me a practical example of that. A practical example of that would just be, let's call it uh, making a bet, right? So in order to make a bet, you would need some kind of escrow service where money could be held. So let's pretend I want to make a bet with John John. And the bet is that it's going to rain on Friday, right? So um, we both put in 100 bucks into a smart contract that's run on the accounting system that is Ethereum. And we wait until Friday comes. On Friday, it rains and something, an oracle, which we will get into, uh, reports information to that smart contract. And then that smart co- contract executes based on the conditions that were outlined by John, John and myself. And whoever bet that it was going to rain, if it did rain, would be paid out automatically. So smart contracts at the most basic tie agreements to their final execution. So in other words, you're agreeing the conditions of that contract up front and there is no intermediary. So if those conditions are met, you're going to win the bet or you're going to lose the bet. Yep. Right? Yeah. So I mean, in, in development, one of the big things we say with Ethereum code is law. Whatever the code says, you know, that is guaranteed to be executed. So I think um, just to add on to Jay's example over there, in traditional financial sort of spheres, we find banks, right, where you have people who borrow money at one rate and they lend money at another rate, and you have to have a lot of specific knowledge and license, and you have to really trust that that bank would fulfill the duty. Sort of what smart contracts allows you to do, it allows you to write functions that say, accept this money, and people can lend money into this contract, and people can also borrow money. And from that, you know, sort of certain yields arise that people can generate. And it's all, you know, very programmatically guaranteed that if you lend money to this this contract, you'll be able to sort of take it back at a later stage and, and earn a certain yield. All right. So the, the question we've started off asking, is this the next big thing? I don't think we quite answered that one. John, John, you pick that up. Yeah. So I think what it really does is it allows people to experiment and create new financial paradigms that perhaps 
couldn't be created and experimented with so easily before. I mean, in the olden days, being like recent history, you can't just generally create your own bank with your own borrowing and lending protocols. You can't create your own options platform or your own synthetic ASIC platform. Today, people like me who sit in the basement and code the proverbial basement you know we can we can write smart contracts and we can create our own protocols to allow people to sort of have options or you know trade synthetic assets um we can do things such that you know if there's five different lending protocols and one's got a four percent yield one's got a five percent yield you can write smart contracts that when money is accepted into that contract it will look for the best yield amongst other contracts and invest into that exact contract so that's a bit of a kin like you know if you have ned bank standard bank fnb and they all have different rates imagine every time you deposited automatically it would give it to the bank that gave you the best yield and all of that is sort of enabled through the fact that it's this this the system where development costs are low it's easy to get involved anyone can deploy smart contracts and use these protocols and anyone can plug into other financial systems so it's very experimental and there's a lot of innovative financial paradigms coming out of it and yeah, we'll get onto another one now, flash loans, which just can't exist in the real world. And I think people will find that fascinating. Right. You're talking about decentralized finance and all yeah. the, the stuff that's happening in that. Let's come to that in a minute. But I still haven't got an answer to my question. Is it the next big thing? Well, I guess why I would say it's the next big thing is things like Bitcoin, they don't sort of provide a mechanism for developers to build anything meaningful on it. It's just monetary value transferring between people. Ethereum provides a platform where sort of any arbitrary computation can actually be executed. So that allows people to basically develop whatever they want in code on a system that accepts value. So it just opens up a lot of use cases. If you want to tokenize property, you want to run automated all funds. Right, so it's pause all, there and just explain yeah. what we mean by tokenizing property. Es- essentially, you know, traditionally, if you want to... In- diversify your investment portfolio you hold some equities you hold some bonds generally holding property can be quite difficult you know if you're a single investor to to buy your own primary residence it might not make sense but you want to allocate say 10 percent of your money to buy property you know tokenizing property is the idea that you have a fund that buys this property and you have these tokens that represent the underlying value of the fund And because tokens in the digital world, you know, Ethereum, Bitcoin, they're divisible up to 18 decimals. It means you can own, you know, a real small fraction of property and it allows people to get, you know, involved and sort of miss some of those traditional barriers of those upfront capital. Of course, you can also sell a small portion of that property if you own a a token. Exactly. Okay. To really like answer whether it's the next big thing, you got to like... You look at fintech, right? Fintech has traditionally been companies utilizing technology to do cool things, right? Ethereum is technology that allows people like John John to build billion-dollar organizations, like he said, in the proverbial basement. Um, and that's that's quite a remarkable thing. I mean, there's there's a whole financial infrastructure building on top of Ethereum. It's an open field of innovation as opposed to the the old walled gardens of innovation that we see in the financial sector of today. Very difficult for the world of finance to compete with this emergent technology. We saw institutional investors piling into Bitcoin in 2020, right? 
And that fired the price towards the end of last year. It's an unbelievable year for, for cryptos, especially Bitcoin. It seems the same is now starting to happen, happen for, a the, uh, for Ether. Uh, could we see Ether at Bitcoin level prices in the next few years? Sure. Jason? Well, I mean, and know, I think let's just distinguish yeah. between Ethereum and Ether. Can you just start off with that, please? Cool. Okay, so it, that, it's always nice to just separate the two. So, ETH or Ether is the asset of the Ethereum network. It's the it's the value token that incentivizes certain behaviors. And uh, if if you want to think about a performance thing, you know, we always see ETH as an incredibly high beta Bitcoin, and we see it as a complement to Bitcoin's ecosystem. So, will Ethereum produce? greater gains than Bitcoin going forward. Well, in this year that institutions arrived at Bitcoin, in the last year, ETH is up 676% in the last year. Bitcoin's only up about 270%. Year to date, Ethereum's really shot the lights out, 80%. And Bitcoin's only up just shy of 8% year to date, right? So um, I think Ethereum's already put its hand up for for guys that are fully entrenched in the, in the ecosystem. It's really everything that people talk about when they when they talk about blockchain blockchain is ethereum and uh yeah I, uh, talking about like price levels for ethereum is very difficult right because if we, we don't quite know what type of asset ethereum is just yet okay so you've normally got capital assets that return you some kind of value flow whether it be a rent a dividend or, or interest you've got commodity assets that have value because they can be consumed or transformed into something and then you've got store of value assets, assets that historically are scarce, assets that are very difficult to replicate or make more of, right? And Ethereum is currently, it's like a water-like commodity in that it's, it's value capture, its ability to actually take the value that its network produces and bring that into the token, right? So in, in the same way that Facebook's share is only as good as Facebook's ability to monetize every additional unit user that comes onto its platform. We'll see a similar value accrual um, process with Ethereum, okay? But Ethereum is experiencing changes right now, and I'm sure we're gonna dig into ETH 2.0, but basically it's gonna move from a water-like commodity that doesn't really possess great value capture mechanisms into what we would call a triple point asset, where ETH as an asset on the Ethereum network possesses characteristics that resemble capital assets, characteristics that represent uh, commodity assets, and that every time Ethereum is used, it will be burnt, it will be removed from supply, and uh, store of value properties in that Ethereum is becoming a large collateral asset on the Ethereum network itself. People are are using it to borrow, using it as collateral to, to borrow against or using it to provide liquidity to different exchanges. Um, so could it go higher than Bitcoin? It, 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 it's very difficult to say. You know, the, what Bitcoin is going for is, is, is eliminating the ability for monetary discretion, right? It, it's an asset that, that removes people's ability to... to have discretion over its monetary policy, right? And that that's a large total addressable market. It's it's close to a hundred trillion US dollars. Whereas Ethereum, I, I would compare to the advent of double entry bookkeeping, in that Ethereum is a incredibly flexible, incredibly expressive accounting system, on top of which we can build 
businesses. So in the same way that double entry bookkeeping is essentially the protocol of capitalism, uh, without double entry bookkeeping, we would never have seen the $80 trillion stock market that we have today. I think that Ethereum will represent a similar platform, a similar protocol for the information age, the digital age. All right, John, John, talk about Ethereum 2.0. Now, we did have some problems in the early days of Ethereum, right? The, the whole ICO, or the initial coin offering that happened a few years ago, that just kind of exploded and Ethereum picked up a lot of the flack because these ICOs were built on the Ethereum blockchain network. What is Ethereum 2.0? Does it solve some of the problems, some of the technical difficulties that were there? And is this going to help the business case and therefore the asset price? Yeah, for sure. So let's dive straight into it. And, you know, the first thing to note, Ethereum 2.0, it's not like a traditional 1.0 and 2.0. It's not It's not like a brand new thing that people are moving to. This is version one that will exist and then there'll be version two. It's a slow transition and it's basically just an upgrade of Ethereum to a more new version. Essentially, the main net will continue to exist. But the main reason it's happening is essentially scalability, right? So the network Ethereum, sort of how it works and how people enjoy a decentralized network. So the fact that there's lots of different nodes, and so you can just think of nodes as people sort of running the network. And because there's no central party running the network, you know, no one can sort of manipulate what's happening in the networks. That's why people call it, you know, decentralized. But because it's decentralized and there's thousands of people around the world running these little networks, every single person has to sort of do all the computation of the entire network to sort of validate the integrity of what's going on in the sort of network. So you could imagine if we all have computers running nodes, one of our computers could probably not handle all the computation that's happening, you know, in the whole world, right? So essentially the fundamental limitation right now is every single node has to execute sort of all of the transactions that are happening in the network. And if you want Ethereum to really grow and say handle all of the world's transactions, all of the world's activity, then there would only be a really small subset of people who would actually have, you know, powerful enough machinery to actually run these nodes and sort of perform all of this computation. Mm. And that sort of then takes away from what Ethereum wanted to achieve in the first place. So what, just to express it slightly differently, yeah. what you're saying is there's double work happening or triple work or quadruple work happening. And this new Ethereum is basically going to make it more efficient. So you don't have to replicate what other people are doing. Exactly. So essentially, Ethereum is, is looking for a different way to sort of coordinate all the computation while keeping everything safe. And I mean, right now, it's still using proof of work, which is the same sort of mechanism Bitcoin's using, where people are essentially um, running their sort of their, their hardware, their computer hardware to, you know, guess random numbers and hopefully be the next person to put a block on. And it's not perhaps the most efficient way. So Ethereum... ETH 2.0 is, is moving towards something called proof of stake, which they believe is a, a more efficient consensus mechanism, as well as sharding, which is essentially, you know, they want to have lots of different shards. So not, not every computer will have to sort of compute every bit of computation. And it's, it's a bit akin to imagine you have a highway right now and there's sort of one lane at the moment. 
what these shards are doing is they're now increasing more and more lanes in the hardware, uh, in the in the highway, so there can be more and more traffic and more and more computation. So you can think of ETH2 as going from a single lane highway to a 64 lane highway over time. But as you know, how building highways goes, <laughs> there's a lot of errors, there's a lot of issues and a lot of planning. So essentially it's scaling up for the expected growth that's got to come. Because as you say, if we're going to run the world financial system on an entirely new protocol, it's going to have to be a massive, massive highway. Exactly. So, I mean, it's scaling it. And just to give you an idea of already the issues we're running into. So, for every bit of computation you do on the network, uh, the Ethereum network, you have to pay for that because obviously everyone in the world who runs a node has to do this computation. And the price for this computation in the last year has increased from when I used to you know, send a token, it would maybe cost me one or two cents. Now it's often costing me in the magnitude of four or five dollars just to do a simple computation like send some ether or some tokens from one address to the other. So the, the gas prices, as we call it, have sort of gone from being around one to two G-way or GWAY as we call them, um, now up to often hovering over 100, up to 200. We've even see it, seen it go over to 300. So you can say it's, it's basically 100x the price to, to do computation on Ethereum. And that's due to the massive demand, people wanting to do stuff on it. Right. And Ethereum, too, will help drop that price, presumably, because you'll be able to scale up. Exactly. So, yeah, that's that's really the hope. And it's really a process that's happening over a couple of years because they want to maintain this integrity and security of the system while they do it. All right, let's talk about smart contracts again because I think some people who are looking at crypto as an investment, they, they struggle with this, right? When you borrow money from a bank and you fall behind on your, let's say your mortgage bond, and you know they, they send you a statement say, oh, you're in arrears, you owe 50,000, you've got to pay up. Uh, this mess usually ends up in the courts. And it's decided by a judge. And, you know, it's backwards and forwards. You know, did you do the calculation correctly? There's all kinds of room for interpretation and discretion and, and that kind of thing. That's the existing system that we're talking about, the analog system, if I can call it that. Now, let's talk about DeFi, decentralized finance, where the terms of the loan are written into the code. You can actually do this right now. You can go and borrow on one of these DeFi platforms like Oasis. But if you let's say you're borrowing using Ether as your collateral, you typically borrow about 65% of the value of your Ether, which is your collateral. Now, if the Ether, Ether price drops below your collateral level, the smart contract would liquidate your Ether, it deducts the loan amount plus a penalty fee of about 13%, I think, at the moment, and then it pays you back the balance. So there's no arguing that. That's executed by a contract. There's no judge. There's no agent. There's no intermediary, right? That is just computer code that is deciding that. Is this the future of finance? Is this where we're going? John, John, I'll ask you that. Yeah, so I'll say, as you said it, you know, here code is law. There's no arguments and everything's very simple because it's, it's executed by the code. So I think as you were saying there, for loans at, at the moment, people having to over collateralize their loans, obviously. And then if their collateralization falls low, people sort of liquidate their position, as you were saying, and they pay a fee. And that's that's really interesting. And just to talk about another form of borrowing that doesn't exist in traditional finance, and this really showcases, you know, what decentralized finance is about, is you can actually in, in Ethereum, you can 
borrow money without collateral, but only for, we call it a split second, basically because we call it a flash loan. So the idea is you could borrow $25 million with zero collateral, but the catch is you have to return it in the same function. So essentially what happens is you would borrow the $25 million, you would say, do a bunch of things with it. Maybe you want to arbitrage, you want to you want to unwind a position, etc. And then at the end of what you've done with it, you have to pay back that $25 million. And if you don't pay back that $25 million, the whole transaction reverts. So the whole transaction itself is atomic. And because it happens in code, it allows you, as you say, a flash loan to, in an under-collateralized way, borrow massive amounts of capital for an extremely small fee and perform actions in the financial market. So what is your risk in doing a flash loan like that? Let's say you want to borrow 25 million, you know, and you don't have any collateral. Can you do it? Yeah, anyone can do it. I mean, it's fascinating. The worst thing that can happen is if your your contract at the end doesn't pay it back, the whole thing reverts and all you lose is the transaction fee. So however much gas you used on the network trying to perform it that's all you'll lose gas, which is gas maybe, being the, the the cost the fees exactly yeah maybe five dollars ten dollars depending on how complicated what you're trying so to if cost. you were trying to do an arbitrage with 25 million dollars um i mean that can take some time you know because you've, you've got to ship an asset from one market to another market it could take hours or even a couple of days so in this case, it has to take not hours or days, not even minutes. It has to take place immediately. And that's the amazing thing about Ethereum. You have all of these protocols. And with this $25 million, you can immediately then call another protocol, which is, say, a market maker that allows you to swap that $25 million of dollar into, say, wrapped Bitcoin. And then you can call another protocol that allows you to swap that wrapped Bitcoin into, say, Ether or something else. And then you can, again, swap it back again and return everything. So the concept relies on the fact that all the financial markets in Ethereum, anyone can interact with them instantly and immediately, whether it's to swap funds or to, to lend things out. It's all instant, essentially. Right. And I guess this is would explain to some extent why um, the arbitrage gaps between the markets. Like, you know, if you monitor Bitcoin prices on different exchanges, you know, Kraken and Binance and Luna and so on, you find they track pretty closely. I leave Luna out of it because it's there's a South African component there that has to do with exchange control. So you normally have a you normally buy Bitcoin at about three or four percent higher than you would on the overseas markets. That's why there is an arbitrage gap. But if you're dealing only with the, the, the foreign markets, um, th- this kind of instantaneous or this flash loans where people would be exploiting a micro gap, a tiny little gap there uh, between these markets, this is what it's being used for? Am I correct in assuming that? Yeah, it's, it's being used for a plethora of use cases. It's often being used to attack other protocols because you can generally financially attack other people. If you have $50 million, you can probably manipulate some price and bring about some outcome and drain money. So it's often actually used to hack other protocols. So security and decentralized finance is a massive thing because anyone can see your code and, and what it's doing. But yeah, it's using arbitrage, but the, the exchanges you also 
sort of mentioned, Kraken, Binance, Luno, we basically term those as centralized exchanges. You know, you have people operating them and they're the ones who, who have the textbook and they write your name down and tell you how much money you have. In the Ethereum world, there's actually automated market makers, they call them, and it's a completely decentralized way to, to swap your assets without needing any third party. So there'll be a pool people create where they'll say put some Bitcoin and some Ethereum in at some predefined ratio that equals their market price. And if you want to buy one or the other, you put some of the, the Bitcoin in the pool and you take some of the Ethereum out of the pool. And it's got a very simple equation that allows you to do that and interact with this pool over here. So it's actually essentially a lot of people use it sort of for their decentralized exchanges and to, to price um, and yeah, essentially, that's where the arbitrage happens on the decentralized right. markets. Okay, so we probably need to drill into a little bit the difference between a centralized exchange. You have kind of touched on it. Your, your Binance and your Kraken. Luno would be centralized exchanges because there is a central point of control. We're talking here about exchanges that don't have any of that control. So you can actually sell your Bitcoin on one of these decentralized exchanges, which are really owned by nobody. Exactly, with zero risk. The only yep. thing that owns it is code defines it. And this code says if you put in that much, you know, you can take out that amount. And, and that's it. So there's basically much less risk uh, or that's what people perceive at least. You don't have to trust, you know, centralized parties. You don't have to sign up with a platform, give them your information. Hmm. It's as simple as calling a bit of code. And, and I don't even think your email is disclosed at any point with a lot of these decentralized oh, no, nothing absolutely yeah. so nothing. They, they don't know who you are no. yeah you you could be buying bitcoin from a guy but you know that it's a safe transaction you just don't know who the other party is like if you think about DeFi, so let, let's compare centralized finance to to decentralized finance decentralized finance obviously the 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 smart contract has some financial use case okay point number one Point number two, it's permissionless. Anyone can use it. You don't need anyone's permission to use it. Point number three, it's um, pseudonymous in that you don't actually have to reveal your identity to the exchange. If it's a decentralized exchange, you don't have to reveal your identity. The next one is that it's non-custodial in that you don't actually have to even part with your, your funds. You remain in control of your private keys. You can use an exchange, but you still remain in control of your own private keys. Uh, that obviously brings a, a, a lot of freedom, but a lot of responsibility in ensuring that you're storing those private keys adequately. Um, and then the last and final piece is probably the most exciting part, and that's that these DeFi, decentralized finance protocols are governed in a decentralized manner, right? By they're governed by their users. You know, you find me a bank that is making changes and, and, and iterating and innovating based on the needs and wants of their customers, right? That's what DeFi networks are doing. And like, just to touch quickly on the, on the inefficiencies of borrowing and lending in DeFi, okay? Ethereum is a financial system native to the internet, okay? And, and people are arriving there now. And the reason that we don't have the ability to, to have lower collateralization ratios or more flexible finance um, or, you know, sitting down and having a conversation when someone's not meeting their, their payments is because no one has developed a long enough reputation on the Ethereum network yet. And, and we haven't found a way to sort of port uh, traditional legacy rep reputation or identity onto the Ethereum network. But 
with time and, and clever guys building smart contracts will start to go and track people's identities, right? So your identity being your public key on Ethereum. So let's pretend I wanted to, on, on Aave or on, on Compound, start uh, releasing uncollateralized loans, which we will start to see in the future as people build up reputation scores. The, the only reason a bank loans uncollateralized is because they've got this wealth of information on the individual that they believe is of a risk profile that is worthy of lending to. And because of the auditability of the potentially the greatest accounting mechanism the world has ever seen, being Ethereum, uh, we will be able to go back. We will be able to identify every public key that has taken a loan, and we will be able to build the reputation score for every single um, public key. Um, And that will result in more expressive ways of being able to lend money, uh, moving away from such... um, such high levels of collateralization into e- either completely uncollateralized or, or lower levels of collateralization where there's slightly more relaxed uh, liquidation events that would be taking place. So it, it, it's, it's very much like when you used to send emails back in the early 1990s, right? Like it was inefficient, right? It wasn't user-friendly. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't um, what it is today. Right? But that doesn't change the fact that in these lending protocols that we're talking about right now and the fact that we're talking about how inefficient they are, there's, there's close to $27 billion US dollars worth of collateral locked up in these, in these lending protocols. Right? Like people, people are coming to them quickly. That, that's, a, that's a 300x increase from Ethereum's peak in January 2018. Hmm. Right? This is significant, significant growth. And yes, there are inefficiencies. Yes, there are limitations. But every day there is a decentralized army of financial innovators picking and choosing what problems they feel like solving today. Where do you see the banks fitting into this going forward? And I mean, you mentioned that they, their collateralized loan model. Uh, but if you're an Anglo-American and you've been around for 100 plus years, you know, you, you probably just pick up the phone, you'll, you'll, you'll get a loan. And if you're a high net worth individual, it, it may be the same. In a sense, there is also a form of collateralization there. I mean, they, they know that you're good for that. And that, listen, if you if you fall into trouble, you're going to have to sell one of your beach houses, maybe to you pay back the loan. But where do you see them? How are they going to adapt to this? We're talking about decentralized finance. You said, what, $27 billion. That's cl- Okay. Uh, I think it might be even slightly higher than that. Uh, I think it might be over $30 billion at the moment, dollars. Yeah. That's in, in, from nothing a year ago. This thing is exploding, and I think it's, it's passing under people's noses, and they better start paying attention to it. And, and the banks are probably paying attention to it. I know Investec is, yeah. um, because Chris Becker, who's been on the podcast before, he's leading up their blockchain development there. Yeah. But I think a lot of the banks are completely asleep on this. Yeah. What, what so do you think, Jason? Look, I, I don't know what's going on inside of banks. I just know that decision-making is, is slower than decision-making that's going on on the Ethereum network. Right? I, I would hate to know the, the total amount of Ethereum developers around the world from different jurisdictions, no borders, collaborating. I mean, uh, John, John, I'm not sure how dispersed your team is, but I bet you if you were to tell us that not one of them would be in the, in a, in the same country, right? Like. Banks are competing against a, a scary army. And you know, COVID has taught us how scary it is to fight a decentralized um, network effect, um, in this case a disease, 
with central measures, right? Like COVID was, it was a brilliant example in when this infectious disease infected every additional uh, person, it, the strength of that disease got stronger and stronger. Its hold over society got stronger and stronger. And as central entities trying to fight that, incredibly, incredibly difficult. So having said that, I think this is something for Bitcoiners to, to really take under consideration. Bitcoin is not scalable right now, right? And it, and it probably won't change its model too much going forward into the future. So any Bitcoiner who's looking for true, true um, sort of uh, financial, I don't want to call it financial freedom. I don't want that to get confused with getting rich. Right? It's more autonomy, um, autonomy, right? So um, anyone who's looking for Bitcoin to truly succeed needs to understand that Bitcoin right now is a public payment mechanism, right? That's, that's pretty damn in, in, inefficient, okay? And it doesn't have the necessary expressiveness to really put it to work, to really power things like capital formation, borrowing, all the sort of money verbs, all the things that you could do with money. If Ethereum is unsuccessful in its quest to, to building a decentralized financial infrastructure, that will mean that banks in their current form will serve as the private payment mechanism, the more expressive place to take your, to take your Bitcoin. So banks really should be, should be looking at Ethereum. They should be looking at, at creating ways for their clients to interface with Ethereum protocols and applications. They should be, they should be using, um, they should be building these protocols and these rule sets into, into their own underlying banking infrastructure. But if if Ethereum isn't successful and it and it doesn't do this, that means that Bitcoin, like most forms of money, ends up going straight back into the centralized hierarchies of finance. They're sitting in the hands of the lords of finance mm. in banks. Okay, and I think what people you know who are investing in cryptos are what's the ultimate goal here? You know, you want to be able to whether your money sits in cash in rands or in US dollars or euros or Bitcoin or Ether. You want to be able to make a payment with the same facility and the same ease with any one of those, right? You're not really interested in what's happening in the background and what fancy technology there is. I want to go and I want to buy a cappuccino. And I, whether I pay with Ether, so it might, you know, a little menu might pop up. What do you want to pay with? Rands, Ether, whatever. Um, and you might have to hit that button. Is that not the goal that we're aiming for here? Is this very sort of fluid uh, that, that's money not, payment system. That's not the immediate goal. You know, like the, the world of finance is so obsessed with money as a medium of exchange. Okay. And there's, there's a law called Gresham's law that, that, that speaks about how good money drives out bad money. And it can be said the, the opposite way around. But spending in Bitcoin or spending in Ethereum right now is not, is, is not a good decision. Bitcoin, Bitcoin and Ethereum in their, in, their, in their evolution and becoming money, right? So originally they started as collectibles. They're very much becoming store of values now. And once they've stored enough value, once they've gotten into enough people's pockets, um, they will then move on to a medium of exchange. But let's think about the, the thought process of using Bitcoin as a medium of exchange or using Ethereum as a medium of exchange. Um, I want to buy a coffee. So I'm going to use Bitcoin and my, my sort of calculation in my head needs to be, what is the opportunity cost of, of buying this coffee with my Bitcoin now? And what is the cost to actually perform the transaction? And if those two costs added together aren't lower than the cost of completing a transaction without Bitcoin or without Ethereum, then there's no point in actually 
making that transaction with these digital assets right now. They, they, the end goal is, yes, to transition from store of value to medium of exchange and then eventually become a unit of account globally. But we're not quite there yet. The, like, like I said, opportunity cost and the cost of transacting in Bitcoin are not cheaper yet than the cost of completing a transaction without it. Okay. To, yeah, just to add on that, for me, what I would say sort of the end goal is right now is it's not so much yeah, that medium of transaction. For me, it's, it's experimental. It's like, can we figure out a better way to do what we're doing with the current financial system that's more transparent and it empowers users more than big corporations? So, I mean, the biggest difference between today's banks and sort of the protocols on Ethereum is today's banks are, are very opaque. We don't really know what happens or how they function. Whereas these these open source protocols that allow borrowing and lending on Ethereum, essentially the banks of Ethereum, everything's completely open source. I can go look at all of their code, see exactly how the bank works. I can literally contribute to the code and help shape what the bank looks like going forward. And when you let people help and create efficiencies for that bank, the pace of innovation is a lot faster. So people really want to, you know, as a collective govern these protocols. So, you know, the more you use this bank on Ethereum, you know, often the more governance tokens for that sort of protocol you get given and the bigger say you also have in, you know, what should we do to X, Y or Z going forward. So everything's very open. It's very transparent. It's how can we work together as people and make this as efficient as possible? All right. Jason, should those who own Bitcoin also start loading up on Ether as well? If they, if they think that Bitcoin has a chance of succeeding, Bitcoin will require a, a decentralized commercial banking industry. And without, without Ethereum's success, Bitcoin is going to struggle to truly um, provide the freedoms that it promises. Mm. Um, I, I think that in, in our fund at Etherbridge, we, we actually go 50-50 on both of them. I love the beta that Ethereum gives me back to the okay, example. Okay, just, just uh, explain beta. All right, so beta is almost, you know, for every for every percent that Bitcoin moves, let's say Ethereum moves 3%, right? Okay. So uh, these digital assets are incredibly correlated to one another. The movement moves almost together. Money flows into the whole asset class as a... Um, in its in its sort of entirety and that that correlation that strong correlation gives the ability to have plays like on ethereum this this higher beta option to to bitcoin all right you just touched on a point there etherbridge you do have a fund you you are managing a crypto fund just very briefly tell us about that what are the assets you have in there Brilliant. So at at the moment we we are literally just bitcoin ethereum and and chainlink so um, we've we've chatted a bit about Bitcoin and Ethereum, but just to put Chainlink into perspective, at, at Etherbridge we look at uh, we look at pure ways of expressing our views. Um, I'm incredibly bullish on on DeFi. I think that DeFi is going to reshape commercial banking. Um, how that will look in 20 years, I'm not sure, but I know that it's got a part to play. But every single DeFi network or protocol is essentially just a smart contract, right? And that smart contract needs to be able to communicate with the outside world. And this is where Chainlink fits in. Um, in that example about the bet where we're betting on the weather, Chainlink would be the service that would be reporting the weather to the smart contract. So we need ways to report information in a decentralized fashion 
to these smart contracts so that they can... That's what you call an oracle, the the provider of third-party information to the network, right? Yes. So so our portfolio is looking at at pure plays. We we are looking into DeFi and building DeFi into our portfolio. We don't believe that it's it's quite necessary just yet. Um, Just just a small note on on what's going on in DeFi is that just like when we saw the the advent of of double-entry bookkeeping... Um, you had companies that came that that started to um, sort of uh, use accounting to manufacture enough trust to coordinate enough people to do a certain activity. What we're seeing in DeFi is truly amazing, and that all of these protocols that we've spoken about today, whether it be Compound or Aave or Uniswap, they all have their own um, token. Right, and that token allows users to govern updates and changes that are going to be made to that protocol. But what's really exciting about the tokens is that they're essentially flexible, sort of value pass-through mechanisms. Right, so which give you voting rights as well. Which, which gives you voting rights, like, like a share would in a company. Exactly. So if you think about the value accrual formula for a for a share for a stock, right, a, a company can reinvest earnings. Um, it can issue a dividend. It could buy back shares and remove those shares from supply. It could pay off existing debt. Um, it could even perform mergers and acquisitions, right? And we're going to see a very similar thing with these DeFi tokens. And they're, they're going to really play with that value accrual formula. We've, we've already seen the sort of uh, equivalent of, of share buybacks in, we call them burns, where they when a token is used, it's, it's removed from supply or profits are taken and then they buy tokens on the open market and remove them from supply. So there's always this sort of buying pressure from, from earnings. And um, it, I, I've, I've started to refer to DeFi as almost the gateway drug for CAs and CFAs, right? There, there is real um, value accrual happening on some of these networks. There are real cash flows. There are real... Um, there are real financial activities going on and real value is happening on some of these networks. And you're going to get all the CFAs and the rest of them applying their traditional valuation methodologies there. Okay. How did your fund do last year? So we closed the uh, – we started trading uh, 11th of November. So on the books, we we were up 46% from 11th of November. 11th of um, November to now? We, we, we oh, talking. so Nove- 11th of November to now, we did 46% year-to-date, or no- 11 November Which to November are we talking about? Last year. 2020? 2020, 46%. Yeah. 46%, wow. and then, uh, yeah, and uh, this year we, we're up about 60-odd percent. What, what are the, uh, John, John, what altcoins are catching your eye very quickly? Sorry, say that again, which altcoins? Altcoins, yeah. Altcoins being coins which are not Bitcoin. For sure. Um, so I would say, I mean, I don't know if you can call Ethereum an, an altcoin, but for me, that's still, I would say, my biggest um, play. But otherwise, I would say a lot of the tokens governing the protocols that exist currently now on Ethereum and that people are using them more and more. So, for example, things like Aave, Compound, um, Tornado Cash, all of these new financial primitives they issuing tokens and it's not just like this big ICO where these tokens are, you know, unfairly accrued. It's, you know, you get these tokens from using the platform. So mm. yeah, I'd say I'd say Ethereum for me is a big one. And yeah, I mean, that's that's where I'm at it, at the it, moment. That's where you stop. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. and I think Jason, you would add Chainlink to that. You just mentioned that. Oh, I'd I'd add Chainlink um 
to that. I would uh, I would add Uniswap to that. You know, Uniswap is doing seven day exchange volumes close to six point two billion US dollars with over a hundred thousand traders on a daily basis. Right, wow. there's real stuff going on there, and there's a token you can buy that will bring value back to you one day. Um, so yeah, I, I would start buying the infrastructure of of this new financial network. Um, so owning something that performs exchange function being Uniswap, something that does lend, borrow, compound, and Aave, um, something that prediction markets have, have been quite slow, but I, I think the idea is there, so small allocations to things like Argor, which perform prediction markets, allowing people to bet on events. Spell that. Um, A-U-G-U-R. Augur. Uh, yeah. Isn't it pronounced Augur? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there's there's some really exciting one industry in DeFi that's been quite sort of slow in terms of price appreciation has been sort of derivatives and options. So two that we're looking quite closely into are Hedgeek and Perpetual Protocol. Um, we quite like like. Final those. question: Give me your price predictions for Ether and Bitcoin for 2021. Both of you. So. It's incredibly difficult to to make a price prediction for Ethereum, right? Yeah. With, without a I robust, know. that's why I'm asking you. Without a robust <laughs> value accrual, um, it, it's interesting to note that uh, Ethereum, like Bitcoin, benefits from network effects. And in fact, if you track them back, uh, Ethereum is almost lock and step with with how Bitcoin's network effects were playing out, if not uh, growing faster. So, yes. what's the price? I, I would say ten thousand US dollars for for Ethereum mm-hmm. um, over the next five years, um, and then I will stick by the price prediction I I made last time for Bitcoin, um, sort of uh, base case a hundred k, bull case two fifty plus. For what period of time? Um, we expect this cycle to peak out. Towards the end of 2021, beginning of 2022. Okay, John John. Sure, okay. So mine are probably slightly different. I've yeah, been through watching all of my money go up and down a few times in crypto. Mm-hmm. So I'm a, I'm a bit skeptical. And again, this is throwing a dart on a board. So this is not financial advice. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, Bitcoin, I'd say $20,000 by the end of the year. Um, although I probably will go up further and then come down. Ethereum, I'd say maybe. You, you're saying Bitcoin is going to be, it's now $32,000. You're saying it's going to go down to twenty by the end of this year. You see it falling. Yeah, in yeah. my opinion. Okay. We had a bet. I had a bet with my brother when the Bitcoin was in its last bull run. It was $21,000. And he betted it would be under five by the end of the year. And he he won. So mm. I'm heeding. I'm heeding. And I've seen this this bull market happen, you know, three or four times. So I think in the long term, of course, a lot of value. But I do think it's gone up a bit hot at the moment. Yeah. Ethereum, I think it's going to have more and more value cotton onto it. So I'd say between two to five thousand dollars by the end of the year okay interesting you obviously didn't read the bank of america report where their technical analyst put bitcoin at three hundred and eighteen thousand oh, dollars in wow. 18 months okay and that that's based Let's on see. a sort of study of the channel and you know it's, it's got this sort of parabolic channel that it's rising wow. into um because anybody owning bitcoin you know they they will grab onto those kind of studies because tell us your prediction i'm interested to hear do you have any i i would say bitcoin okay you put me on the on the spot now that's a good one um i i would put bitcoin at a million rand okay okay yeah Yeah. so that's what probably going to be around 
it, it's what, what 40 is it to 50,000 dollars yeah, yeah okay yeah and ethereum um ethereum i would put at two and a half thousand dollars okay. yeah so similar range mm. yeah let's see i mean again don't sell your house and put it into this but no. it is a good technology and i think it's worth yeah paying strong attention okay we're going to leave it at that. Thank you to both of you for coming. That was Jason Carpenter yeah. of Etherbridge and John John Clark of Avo Labs. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Kieran.